The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Royal Pain in the Arse edition. It's Wednesday, January 15th. 2020. On today's show, 1917 has dethroned Star Wars at the box office. It's won a Golden Globe for Best Picture. It tells the story of a couple of World War I grunts. And then the Up series, the grand expose of the British class system, has been called the greatest, most profound, most noble documentary series of all time. Its latest installment is 63 Up, and we will discuss. And finally, Harry and Meghan call it quits. Joining me today is June Thomas, the uh, podcast Pooba of Slate.com. Hey, June, welcome back. Thank you so much. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Uh, let's dive in, shall we? Um, Sam Mendes is, uh, he's, I think, best known probably as director of American Beauties, some Bond films. He's also a very accomplished uh, stage director. He has co-written and directed the movie 1917, now out in theaters. It's based on stories told to him by his grandfather about his grandfather's experience in World War One. Of course, the Great War was unrivaled for its brutality and pointlessness. It's known best, of course, for the trenches, those linear cities dug out of the earth into which armies deposited themselves, then fought interminably for the tiniest patches of land until everyone forgot why they were there in the first place. This movie tells the story of two Lance Corporals given a mission that's as simple as it is nearly impossible. They must somehow make their way through all of that dreadful no man's land in between the trenches, the various fronts amid burning ruins and biplanes, and deliver a message. Call off your attack because it's a gigantic trap, an ambush that will end in the massacre of all 1,600 of you. It stars George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman as the corporals and features Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin Firth, and Hot Priest. Let's listen to a clip. Colonel McKenzie is in command of the second. He sent word yesterday morning he was going after the retreating Germans. He is convinced he has them on the run, that if he can break their lines now, he will turn the tide. He is wrong. Colonel McKenzie has not seen these aerials of the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defenses, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Lacoste. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. Dana, we should probably add that this movie is built around, you could call it a one-shot, maybe it's a two-shot. I've seen it described both ways, but it's basically meant to look like a single continuous take. Uh, It's quite a grand project. What did you make of it? Okay, if you had asked me this two weeks ago, I think I would have had only good things to say about 1917. Um, I gave it a a positive review. A glowing Um, review. Yeah, I would say, I guess a glowing review. I would send people to see it. It's a conventional war movie in some ways, in spite of that conceit of the of the one take, which is, of course, as with Birdman, for example, a digitally aided one take that uses 
all kinds of CGI technology to kind of mask the cuts. But the cinematography by Roger Deakins is kind of the star of the show. But I don't agree with many of the critics, some of whom we, we read in, in preparing for this segment, who find it to be a pure video game gimmick that's, for example, soulless, I think. David Sims, friend of the podcast, who's been on our show of The Atlantic, called it a, this this sort of soulless movie that's all about the camera and showing off the technique. I think there's going to start to be a backlash against it, including maybe for me, because of all the recognition it's getting. When I reviewed it, I sort of thought, let's let's champion this little odd one-take movie about World War One that otherwise might sink unnoticed. And far from sinking unnoticed, it's now won, as you pointed out, Best Picture and Best Director at the Golden Globes, which doesn't necessarily prognosticate Oscars, but it means it's in the conversation. And uh, if it starts to get over-recognized, I'm going to get a little bit annoyed because in many ways, this is a, a conventional movie in its view of war. It doesn't really advance any new thinking about war. You could argue, and I say this in my review, that it aestheticizes war to some extent, but you could say that about almost any war movie, right? But I was emotionally moved by it. I had completely disagreed that it was just a, a soulless video game exercise. And although at times the conceit took over from the dramatic action, I thought both the two actors, George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman, who play these very young soldiers sent on this mission, are wonderful actors. I mean, there you, I think, really see Sam Mendes' strength as a theater director and the fact that he can bring out great performances. The fact that they're unknowns and that many of their higher-ups are stars, like Colin Firth or the hot priest, Andrew Scott, um, put, gives you more of a sense of authenticity almost, that there are these two young kids who just happen to find themselves in this perilous situation. And uh, yeah, I mean, without giving anything away about the twist, there were several things in this this movie that moved me to tears. And so, yes, I will stand up for it, although I will also be really annoyed if it beats Parasite for Best Picture or, or almost any of the other movies on the slate. June, uh, Dana uh, refers to some critics comparing it to a video game. I hadn't read that when I saw the movie and came out thinking it, that there's something about the pattern of the action that involves a central character completing a set of tasks upon each completion levels up to another that's only that much more difficult in order to achieve some you know, narrative end at the end end of the whole thing. What do you make of the movie? What do you make of it as a statement about war, as a video game, as an action thriller in its way? Well, I have to say one thing first, which is that I did watch it in screeniform on a tiny screen on my computer. And I feel that was a big mistake because that really allowed me to get out of the action. Oh, yeah, it's a big screen for sure. Definitely. For I mean, sure. even the second that it started, I knew that, but also I just didn't have that. That was not possible for me. Um, so I so a little bit of an apology to the film and also for be, just being very conscious that I had an atypical response. But as much as that's kind of, uh, you know, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's convincing. It's it's like a it, it feels like a smart take to to talk about the leveling. That wasn't my experience of the movie. Um, for me, actually, I was very aware of it being a sort of a professional director, if you will, by which I mean that often when you have movies or TV shows or anything that's directed by an actor, all they do is this like series of climax, 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 climax. And because they're kind of, I think I'm projecting, but I think they're imagining like those five seconds that are going to appear like on the Oscar show, you know, for their movie. And it's got to be like, you know, it's got to be at level 10 with a peak at level 11 from time to time. And there was so much variety. This was a roller coaster. Really, you you had this this peril, these moments of peril of like, oh my God, this is it. This is the end of excruciating horror and and pain and just uncertainty. Will they achieve their mission? And yet it did have that variety for me. So the leveling up thing um, 
just kind of makes it feel much more programmatized than I felt it. I didn't necessarily enjoy this feeling of shit, is this all going to be for nothing? Which in a way might almost be the expected uh, outcome of a movie about the Great War, uh, which I think more than any war is considered to be just a complete waste of humans and, you know, money and everything. One thing that did strike me um, was that in a war that, as we've all said, you know, is the trench warfare, the stalemate, the utter, you know, just literally nothing is happening for years except, you know, for these hopeless, pointless method of war, that this is the opposite. This is an action movie, not necessarily in a sense of fighting and, and, and uh, battles, but in a sense of literal movement of people moving from one place to another uh, through terrible peril. Yeah, there's not that much danger. military action. It's no. more like horror movie action at yeah. some points, right? Yeah. Because it's these two young men exploring this essentially deserted kind of graveyard territory. Yeah, I did find that horror movie comparison even more at because it's like something's going to Something that's outside of their control that's, that we don't know, that we can't see either is going to, you know, it's almost kind of like jump scares kind of from time to time. Unexpected things uh, that, that come to pass. Yeah, June, I, I really agree with that. I mean, I think the power of this mo- movie derives from the kind of terrestrial architecture of the first world war which iconically is these trenches and then no man's land in between them and a real no man's land like like if you expose yourself to the ordinary ground level you're slaughtered instantly and um it's just a landscape of incredible dread and also remarkable beauty i i assume they're in france and so you get the experience of coming above ground and there at moments there's sun and trees and great natural beauty at the same time it's just completely dehumanized and and in parts uh, devastated all those visual images are very powerful uh i found the gimmick distracting i don't i I thought it enhanced the movie early on because the linearity the sort of uh, endless linearity of the trenches is very well described by a camera that's just eternally dollying backwards or sometimes forward um but it lost its efficacy for me as uh, the the young men emerged out into the world. Um, and then it began to distract me slightly. Um, this movie, I think, is highly personal to Sam Mendes, the co-writer and director, because these stories arrive to him via his grandfather, to whom they presumably happened. So it's the story of that family line not being annihilated by this act of mass annihilation and you feel that in the film i mean i think the actor playing this particular corporal is a remarkable it's a remarkable performance it's highly personal to him and his face and the experience that he's having the the movie for me runs into a problem because the the statement about the first world war is a familiar one and it's restated here fairly well but without a lot to add to it which is about june as you say this utter stalemate and so you can't derive a kind of ultimate climactic satisfaction from a World War I movie. And so the statement of the film and the basic structure of it as an action film don't really work together with one another. Um, and for me, at the end, then, this sort of cinematic grandeur of it doesn't pay out. Um, that said, I, I, I come out where Dana does, that it's it's a very, very, very good movie, and I was grateful to have seen it. But I wouldn't say that um, I loved it. And I if I felt like it were going to dethrone Parasite. I mean, I think that there are four or five other movies that are easily the movie of the year in its place. 
I have to say, I know that this is the the game of the movies. This is the business of the movies. But it's kind of crazy that both of you are kind of experiencing this movie through the lens of this external competition for Oscars. Uh, you know, that both of you have said, like, I like this movie, but I'm very concerned. You know, like, <laughs> well, I think that's I mean, so didn't irrelevant. I preface it by saying if you'd asked me two weeks ago, yeah, you know, exactly. I, mean, I would much rather experience the movie as the movie itself yeah, yeah. and just let it lie. But yeah. then it had to resurrect itself for this this conversation. And you kind of can't escape it after that. Yeah. It, it, it does remind me of Birdman in that way. I like this movie better than Birdman, but in addition to the one take conceit, it also shares, I think, this this maybe possible path of overvaluation, you know, and uh, and then subsequent backlash. I can see that same thing happening with this movie, and I already see it happening among my film Twitter critic colleagues who are annoyed to see it getting the recognition that it is. It feels to me like a, a personal movie. As you say, Steve, I feel that urgency to tell the story um, behind Sam Mendes's choices and mm-hmm. the actor's choices as well. So I have trouble regarding it as some sort of, you know, villain on the cinematic landscape, yeah. even if it's not a perfect movie. Yeah, it's very hard to make an innovative World War One movie. We know the story. I mean, and ultimately, this whole, you know, the, the, the thing that was set up in the clip that we heard of, you know, the movie is about a journey to save 1600 men from slaughter. And ultimately, you think, 1,600 men in World War One? That's nothing. There were, you know, there were millions slaughtered. There is a sort of an, an I don't even know, like a existential pointlessness to a World War One movie. There's no new points to be made. But isn't there any kind of a profound humanism in that, that in a way it's a movie about the avoidance of war, right? Yeah. These boys are doing all of this stuff, and one of them has a brother who's in yeah. this, this legion or mm-hmm. whatever you call it, the 1,600 men that are about to march into an ambush. And all they're trying to do is just save this few little handful yeah. of people. Yeah. So in that sense, what you're waiting for, the big climax, as you were saying, Steve, is not going to be some sort of military no, triumph. Exactly. We know that. It's going to be saving that that little handful. But honestly, that was the thing that most annoyed me. Like, the, it's it, the brother... Like the general knew about a brother, the brother thing, like it seemed like a contrivance. Yeah, that feels cheap. Whereas the whole idea of like effectively every man, nobodies, everyday heroes who are who are not being heroic, who have no sense of. They're not doing it out of patriotism. Patriotism. They're just doing it because oh, it's Tuesday, you know. Then for it to be a the brotherly thing, like oh, why do you have to do that? That feels too cheap. Okay, the movie's 1917. We like it, maybe don't love it. Um, and we've plugged it maybe a little patly into our Oscar uh, horse race handicapping, but uh, it's good. Go see it and tell us about it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, we uh, typically talk about business uh, at this point in the show. Dana, what do you what do you have? Yes, Steve, just two quick things. First of all, in Slate Plus today, we're going to have a conversation. This was Steve's idea, and I love it, that we're going to do a little bit of uh, Michael Apted (laughs) up-series analysis of our own lives and look back at who we were at seven and see whether it is true, as we keep on hearing over and over (laughs) again in the series, that give me the child at seven and I will give you the man. So that will be our Slate Plus today. 
And of course, if you want to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can always sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. If you want to support the Culture Gab Fest and sign up, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. And also in non-GabFest news, I just wanted to do a little promo for my other podcast at Slate, <laughs> my Slate Plus podcast, which is called Flashback. If you don't know it, it's just a two-hander conversation that I do with Kay Austin Collins, the film critic for Vanity Fair. And every two weeks, we take on another old movie, with old being in our designation anytime from 1895, when the first <laughs> movie was projected, until 1999. And we talk about that movie in depth. It's a great conversation. I've been loving the show. It's been going on for about six months. Right now, Cam and I are doing a little run-up to the Oscars series, where we each chose a movie that in the past had won an Oscar, or in these movies' cases, many Oscars. The first was Kramer versus Kramer, which is the most recently released episode you can hear now on the Slate Culture feed. And next time, we're going to talk about Silence of the Lambs which was Cam's pick. I'm a little scared to watch it again. <laughs> Obviously, that was a big Oscar sweeper, the movie. It came out. So again, if you're interested in exploring Flashback, you can check it out for free right now, the last two episodes at the Slate Culture or the Slate Daily podcast feed. And if that makes you want to sign up for Slate Plus, great. You can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join. All right, Steve, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, digging right back in. Um, Roger Ebert has called it the noblest project in cinema. This is the so-called Up series. In 1964, a young filmmaker named Michael Apted embarked on what would become an experience of a lifetime, literally. He filmed a group of children as they went about their lives and interviewed them. He's followed this same cohort now for 56 years, revisiting them filming them and interviewing them every seven years. The idea was to expose a newly ascendant ethic of egalitarianism as a lie and show how the British class system remained as entrenched as ever in our accents, vocabulary, habits, tones of voice, dress, and carriage. In some sense, children were already formed by the time they were seven. Now at 63 Up, we can see the lifelong arc, the struggles with class, but also illness, mental illness, sexism, racism, love and the loss of love. It is a profound work of elegy. In lieu of a clip, we're going to uh, listen to the trailer. In 1964, Granada Television brought together a group of seven-year-olds. We have followed their lives every seven years, their dreams, ambitions, and fears for the future. Seven years older, seven years fatter, a bit less hair. You look at me at seven, and you look at me even now at 63. It's flown by, Michael. It's a lifelong achievement to be part of this programme. Once you get to your 60s, it all gets a bit, oh, how long have we got now? <laughs> I certainly don't look forward to it every seven years. I suppose as you get a bit older, you've got less to lose. All these things that I've said over the years, yes, it has been worth it. And you better cut it, because otherwise I'm going to cry. June, let me start with you. You're, of course, from the UK uh, and experienced firsthand the British class system. This uh, this project, at least initially, was about proving that we're doomed by social class uh, and by our childhood to some degree. What, uh, what do you make of that? Um, thesis and what do you make of this remarkable uh, series of films? I mean, I would never have argued with that concept. Um, I am just a little bit younger than the people in the movie. Um, uh, I was, I mean, I was born, but not really uh, watching television when the first one was on World in Action. But I certainly watched all the others until I, um, until I left the UK, and now I just watch them as movies, like everyone. Um, but uh, you know, certainly growing up in Manchester, where the show was made, uh, I, I was absolutely 
there's no doubt in my mind that that class ruled everything. I do think though that it's it is different now, and and I think class in a sense, um, you know, and having that thesis going into the movie kind of and spoiled it because I think it's an amazing achievement. But we all are very clear on its limitations uh, that. They picked based on class, that they picked based a little bit on on location as well. Uh, they wanted some country people. They wanted some city people. But they basically chose extreme working class kind of stereotypical East Enders. They chose extraordinarily upper class, uh, you know, going to public school types and, a, you know, just a smattering of others. Uh, and they were very white. They were very male. Um, I actually think in a sense, the thing that I wish for most is that the cohort was not just this cohort. I mean, you can't do anything about it because they've got whatever it is at this point, 10 people that we've been following for, you know, over nine movies. Um, You can't have any more people. It's almost kind of a relief sometimes that people drop out because it's just like so many folks to keep track of. But I wish that we had saw some more about younger people, a different group, because, you know, as one of the people, one of the participants notes, Britain has changed a great deal over the time of the series. It's a much more tolerant place at this point, but there's also a lot less support. None of the EastEnders went to university. But if they had gotten into university, it would have been free. They would have got a grant. They actually, like me, would have been quite well off when they went to university. Um and now, you know, sure, more of their kids, it's more likely that they would go to university, but they won't get any support. Um, you know, they talk, a couple of them specifically talk about the NHS, that the National Health Service is now just really stressed and the benefits that kind of the support for people who need help is not there in the way it was in 1964. Um, and I wish that we could see some of those younger people in similar circumstances, perhaps, uh, you know, how, how is life different for them? We have to kind of project that. But I'm blabbering, blabbering, because I just think this is maybe the most important project of our lifetimes. Well, something I think that Apted himself has said a lot in interviews about it is that the focus of the series changed over the decades and that he now looks back with some embarrassment at how programmatically um classist or I don't know, I don't know, class based the initial project was. I think he would agree about the selection. They only have one person of color, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's four women amidst the 12 total people. Some of them have now dropped out of the, some of them now refuse to talk to Michael Apted. There's a whole backstory about that. And if you do start watching this series, which I think you can jump into at any point, really, because each one has a a pretty extensive summary of, of clips from earlier episodes, there's certainly no need to watch it in a serial binging way. And that would probably make you get sick of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I really just think you should dive in wherever and then explore from there. But it's definitely worth reading some of the background interviews with Apted about how his own experience with these people has changed. Some of them were furious at him for decades. One refuses to talk to him and will only talk to one of his producers. Um, He sometimes pushes them in a way that feels somewhat classist or a little bit paternalistic or domineering. Condescending and really uh, all revealing his interests and his views of them. Uh, yeah. But it's also that's also something I think that he's done a lot of self-scrutiny yes. about. So in so many ways, this project that started out to be this uh, top-down kind of exploration, like this educated man will look at this field of children and decide, you know, who they are and what they might become. It's really been a story of life and actual people's stories, which yeah. are individualistic and unprogrammatic, outpacing that project. And mm-hmm. that is something that's very moving to see, I think, as, as the group gets older. Yeah. Also, once you started watching, I think I dived into this around 35 
um, because that's just around the time I started watching this kind I of I think movie. it's really when they came to the States, too, maybe 28, Yeah, 35, maybe yeah. so. That may have been the first one that came as a movie to the States. Um, but you just really get attached to these characters. Neil, for example, who is just one of the most difficult and lovable people that he follows is... Lovable. In many ways, yeah, I think. Or just, um, what's the word? I mean, he's not easy to love, but he's someone that you remember and that yeah, you worry yeah, about, right? Yeah. And uh, he's this very sensitive, sweet little boy in the first and then becomes kind of a troubled adolescent. And then there's a period when he's a young adult that he's homeless mm-hmm. and sort of living um, off the land in a field, sort of off the grid, mm-hmm. that he's very misanthropic and seems to be the kind of person who could just drop out of society entirely. They had a hard time finding him, I mm-hmm. think, for that one episode. Maybe it was 42. Uh and in ways that I won't reveal, but that you can see if you watch 63, he's kind of found his place and become someone who gives back to society. And that's just a, that's a very moving part of the series. There isn't anyone really in the end that you don't like, even the ones who are awful posh snobs when they were young. I feel like there's something about all of them that is redeeming. I want to hear from, from Steve, but I have to say that just in the way that, um, as I say, I'm not that different in age from them. They are older than me, but not by that much. I do still feel very shaped by the same forces that Apted was obsessed by. So, for example, some of the really posh ones, the the ones who were clearly kind of misused in the beginning because, yes, they were horrible snobs. But, you know, he showed them, he showed one guy, for example, beagling when he was at Oxford. I mean, come on. I'd like, yeah, a little bit of a thumb on the scale. But when he spoke... Uh, in this time, and at this point, you know, he's a QC, he's a barrister, you know, he, he, but he's, you know, devoted to charity overseas, blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, when he was speaking, I gave him the finger, I was talking back, <laughs> and I, you I know, I wish like, I'd watched it with you. I, I, I was just, you know, and it was crazy because I knew, or, or he's not objectionable, he's objectively not objectionable. And yet, my, tr- you know, I was triggered by those things, even though he wasn't saying it with a tone. He actually, is quite conscious, I think, of of his privilege. And nevertheless, I was, you know, talking back to the screen. I'm curious about how this was screened in Britain on television as you were growing up. Was it presented as a once every seven years kind of big television event that everyone should gather around the screen for? Yeah, after a while, you know, after the first, the first two were part of World in Action, uh, which was a show I watched every every Monday night. Um, but once it became an, an appointment event or it became event television, it was extended. So I remember going home and, and my mom would have like taped in the days of VHS, she would have taped it and saved it for me. And I remember it wasn't just one episode. It was like a series of episodes episodes where you really kind of went into more because uh, I remember once seeing one that I'd seen as a movie in the States and then going back home and like just getting a lot more of it. Ah, so we've been seeing trimmed down versions of it this whole yeah. time. Yeah. No, I don't know if they kept on doing that because, you know, then I was further depart, you know, I had more distance from Britain and don't go and watch old you know, old TV shows. Um, but uh, certainly for a long time, there, there was an extended version that you got in Britain. Mm. Um, I love, by the way, Beagle as a verb. I, so a couple things. I mean, the first one was a huge hit in England. And then as I, I remember reading, it landed, quote unquote, like a grenade. And the posh kids not only knew what, at the age of seven, what university they would go to, but which college at Oxford or Cambridge they would belong to as a matter of birthright, practically. And the poor kid had to ask, what's a university? Um, and I, I think that that was quite powerful. And Dana, as you beautifully say, over time, it life intervenes, right? It just inexorably, we're individual human beings and we bring all kinds of deep and weird shadings to our own experiences. Like a superstructural thematic was just always going to dissolve somewhat 
not entirely, not nearly entirely, but not entirely in the face of that individuality expressing itself. I, I love this. I agree with all of the assessments. There's no superlative that you can't use. I think it's just a contribution to um, the world that Apted deserves to be, um, you know, um, lionized for. I am I, interested in the ways in which British reticence um, color all of it in a way. There's a reluctance to talk about yourself that to Americans is very foreign. Um, almost everyone, I mean, with there, there are degrees of volubility, but there is a, a tendency at a certain moment where an American might offer more of a self-centered story. There's just the kind of inbred reluctance to to talk about yourself in that way, um, which couples up with a kind of British anti-intellectualism a little bit. There's a reluctance to 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 abstract from one's own experience um, and and talk about it as meaningfully meaningfully representative uh, of a social or historical trend in a way. So that that very aspect that June was talking about, where you might say, "Well, I was born in X year, therefore my experience generally generationally was of a more rigid class system, but a more a generous social welfare system and on and on. And this is how England has changed in years. And Americans storytell about themselves sort of in that way for how anti-intellectual we're supposed to be. We're nothing compared to the Brits. Our narcissism and our sense of history do occasionally come together and, and produce interesting things. Um, that frustrated me a little bit, that the, the depth and beauty of the elegy of it, of life now becoming way predominantly a retrospective experience for all of these people, including Apted, who has become, I think it's fair to say, ancient in the process of making it. I think he's older than they are. He's 78, um, yeah. Well, he didn't yeah. start when he was seven, so yeah. he's necessarily yeah. older than they are. He's 15 that years older than That is very funny. Are, yes. <laughs> I am such a clod. Uh, uh, so it's suffused with like wisdom and sadness. And, and, and um, there were just moments where I wish they were more openly self-reflective because they're so clearly self-reflective. And then there's one other thing that uh, in some of the readings came up that I was very interested in is that the filmmakers, Apted and the producer who commissioned it, both believed that they came from the middle class and understood the middle class. And so they they kind of, they made it a dumbbell structure. I mean, overwhelmingly, they're either very posh or very East End or working class. And in all societies, over all of time, those are the most fatalistic social classes. The rich believe they are born to something and they cannot be deprived of it. And uh, the poor believe, or the relatively poor um, or working class believe that they are fated to their position in the social hierarchy. Now, America troubles this somewhat, but the UK doesn't, by and large. Um, whereas over the last 400 or so years of having a middle class, the middle class, you know, believes that you can fall, believes that you can rise, both within the middle class and outside of the middle class. And so that's a degree of self-reflection about class as fate that's kind of missing from this project in ways that that I felt left it with a whole a little bit of a hole in the middle, a little bit of a donut. That's it. If you do not know the up series, you ought to watch it. And I think Dana's right. The key the cumulative 
effective. I wouldn't just watch 63 up. You can just watch 63 up. They they catch you up to the present tense. But I would take some time and I would do seven up somewhere in the middle, maybe 35. I would do seven, 35 and 63. Um, and you will have availed yourself of a remarkable like humanist document. Seven up is only half an hour long, which I think a lot of people don't realize. So it's pretty easy to get in on the ground floor with that. Also, you see lots and lots of clips from it in every single one yeah. because it yeah. always kicks off with the little kids. So yeah. you won't you'll, you won't fault seeing the little kids, but those teenage years get a little bit eclipsed. Yeah. And, you know, there are those those awkward stages, which, you know, there's a universality of um, of just age, you know, that all of them are kind of awkward in their teen years. All of them are a little bit bolshy at 21. And then what's Balshi mean? You know, a little bit like I'm not going along Bolshevik, with this. Red, you know, ah. or not, not not necessarily red, but just like they're rebelling. They're mm-hmm. not they're not going with the with the program. And then the ones who stuck with it, like they are, it seems to be loyalty and and you know this is my contribution to the world. Like there's a they're not necessarily into it, but they'll do it. Um, and then there's a couple who are doing it for you know, for the attention, uh, which, you know, very explicitly, um, I think his name is Peter, one of the Liverpudlians who dropped out for many years, who just explicitly said, I'm in it now because I want to draw attention to my band. Um, But as you get to the extremes of, you know, the very young, the very old, they're just things that we're all, you know, everybody deals with this, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you were happy in love or, or not. You know, the body fails or your people around you die. You, you deal with grieving or, or bereavement. And it, those things are more universal. So at the beginning and the end, you know, we are all more alike. In the middle, there's a lot more, a lot more variation. But honestly, it's a little bit less compelling for me. Um, just to, to kind of respond to your point about wishing they were more sherry, I guess, I think a lot of that is about Apted. I mean, I think he, it's interesting to me that uh, he doesn't really do much preparation, he says. Um, like he maybe has a sense, he has a few questions that he asks them all, um, but he doesn't, you know, just like going into a podcast, he doesn't want to, for it to seem rehearsed. At this point, though, they've gone through it so many times that he doesn't really have to prepare them. He, they know how to sit for a shot. They know how to set up. They know like what's going to get, picked and, and be in the show like they're they're going along with it but i think he probably he doesn't seek the the deep insight um for all of his talk for some of them of like you don't seem to be in touch with your emotions well you know there were things he could have done maybe to make them be more in touch with their emotions and he chose not to do that uh, which i think probably is for the best yeah the, it's his reserve that comes across yeah, as well exactly. not just theirs yeah yeah absolutely in june to that i would add that in addition to the the making of the movies having become ritualized um the, the whole project feeds back in itself that these people became famous at the age of seven and progressively more famous over the course of their lives. And uh, um, it, in that sense, there's a Heisenbergian problem, right? I mean, these, these they're, they're not representative. They are the very first reality TV stars in some sense. And uh, that makes for some interesting uh, dynamics as well. They resent Apted for having drawn them into this kind of fame purgatory, you know, where they get many of its downsides and precious few of its upsides. Um, speaking of that, Steve, uh, Tony, the the one uh, boy from the East End who is the t- kind of cheeky chappy jockey turned taxi driver, um, he actually addresses that whole question of the fame that the show has brought him. Uh, so we can actually hear him talk about that. I'll give you a story which happened. The doorman called me up and it was Buzz Aldrin, the spaceman. 
And we drove out the forecourt of the hotel and a cab pulled up and taxi driver said, can you get his autograph? So I heard it and say, Mr. Aldrin, I said, can I have your autograph, please? And the cabbie said, no, I don't want his autograph. I want your autograph. And I couldn't believe it. I said, you're joking, ain't you? And to this day, I thought myself, you know, I'm more famous than Buzz Aldrin. He was the second man to land on the moon. I love Tony. Gotta love Tony. He's such a great character in the show. I know, right? I mean, almost, I mean, it's hard. You could argue for... Almost each one of them is the center of the whole thing. You know, Neil, uh, Dana, as you say, the stork, this sort of giant, thin stork of a man kind of stomping through Scotland, uh, homeless or semi-homeless. I mean, these images are indelible. Yeah, absolutely. Indelible images of Neil. And then just a wonderful moment of montage in 63 Up where Apted cuts from a shot of Tony as a seven-year-old, as this you know sort of sturdy little seven-year-old running to build something in a playground. And then cuts to 63-year-old Tony jogging in the woods. Just the same kind of determined stride, same kid. Mm. I just love the two boys who were in the children's home at the beginning. I mean, the ones who really had the least because are really the, their, their chances of succeeding in life were, were, were the smallest. And they both seem to have built a life that is almost idyllic, you know, not necessarily uh, with lots of... Um, possessions, although certainly the one who moved to Australia seems to have that lovely Australian life. But they do seem very rich in, you know, personally and happy. And that's, to me, that's like the greatest thing about the show. Like, that's that's the most positive outcome for me of all of them. All right. Well, the whole show, except 63 Up, is on Amazon Prime. 63 Up is currently in theaters. It'll make its way to Amazon Prime soon enough. Any way you can, please watch this and report back to us. Okay, moving on. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle shocked the world, I think it's fair to say, by announcing that they would step back as senior members of the royal family. In effect, as I understand it, they renounced their status as members of the royal family. Um, I think it's fair to say Harry has chafed his whole life pretty much at his royal identity, and his new, relatively new bride visibly seems to hate its duties and strictures. I think it's worth fleshing that out, June, a little bit before I turn to you. Um, his mother, in some sense, was killed for being a royal. She was a martyr to its inter- to the royal family's internal hypocrisies and its growing and toxic symbiosis with the tabloid press. And meanwhile, everything is wrong with her. And I say that in quotes, I find nothing wrong with her. But anyway, but from one perspective, horrible perspective, she's American black from showbiz and divorced. As shocking as it is, it's not as though having happened, it's impossible to point to why it happened. Not at all. And I would also say that it's really unclear. Their statement of wanting to seek independence, of stepping back from their duties, I don't think it's quite clear that they've renounced their status, but it's hard to say exactly what they've renounced. It's all a little bit vague at the moment. Um, but no, it's not at all surprising. Um, and I think that um, it's quite understandable even, um, whether it's the you know offensive racism of the British press in their response to Meghan, uh, BuzzFeed had an amazing piece that contrasted how the British press uh, treated almost the exact same things when uh, William's wife did them, uh, who is British and white and blah, 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 and when Meghan Markle did them. It was just an absolutely incontrovertible, you know, one is 
takes the very positive spin, the other takes the very negative spin. It was like something from a, a late show parody. I yeah. mean, it was incredible. Yeah. The yeah. exact same gestures would be read in this this menacing way when Meghan Markle did them and praised when Kate did them. Absolutely. And, you know, to me, it's just an uncontroversial position that the tabloids are racist, that their response to Meghan is racist. And also, honestly, the way that they treat the royals. The royals are the greatest gift to the press. It's the last hope for the survival of the of the British press, I think, because this like the monarchy is a ridiculous institution. It shouldn't exist. But if it does exist, then it will be used to sell newspapers to just kind of, you know, have a story that people are interested in. People are genuinely interested. For whatever reason, we can psychologize why, but it doesn't ultimately matter. People have an interest in these figures um, and they don't play along. One of the things that the Sussexes uh, said, you know, which I think was like, wait, what? Was that they're withdrawing from the royal rota system, which is effectively the pool system for the royals. But when you look at who's involved in it, it's like four tabloids, only one of which is not completely Tory, two Tory broadsheets and a London evening paper that's owned by a Russian, but also is edited by a former conservative chancellor of the Exchequer. Like, it is not an open and fair uh, group of newspapers that they're supposed to kind of confer with. And also just the nature of this relationship with the royal family they don't play along, and so it's really tempting for the so or not tempting. Like the press kind of has to like project a little bit because the 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 royals only give them you know a few crumbs from which they have to make full cakes, and so they you know project a little bit. It's it's um, the whole system is designed to like put crazy shit out there that people then lap up. But if you're the person about whom crazy shit is being made up and horrible things are being said, like it honestly feels kind of reasonable for them to want to just get out of that. And I don't really see why we shouldn't just let them. Well, the Queen has now said, fine, you're out, right? I mean, this is not quite fine, you're out, but she's open to to negotiations, I think. Do you think, June, that it's possible that this is a crack that could start to split the monarchy open? That, you know, when you see that these this young couple can go off and make their own life in media or whatever they're going to do, that people will start to say, wait, this this whole thing was kind of a, a bogus scam to begin with? I hope so. I mean, because I have this weird situation where I grew up there, I go back every year, but I don't live there. I don't, you know, I'm not really part of it. So I see things almost like with a time stop kind of way, you know, the world stops and then I go there and it starts again. It's just a strange way of experiencing life. So from my point of view, I was in Britain when Princess Di died and for the funeral and the crazy outpouring of emotion. And it really does seem to me that that was a change in Britain that after that I saw people like kissing each other and being like it did change the way that British people respond to it. Like that makes no sense. I hear myself saying that and how could it? But I kind of think it does like these people who are like nobody really knows why we're paying for them, what their exact job is. Um, Although, you know, the Queen is 93 and still working her ass off. So like they're doing something. They reflect changes. They they set changes in motion. But at the same time, there's something in the very nature of the institution that prioritizes permanence and lack of change. So it's a very it's a contradictory 
situation. We don't want them to to continue to exist as as you know on the same parallel that they've been for hundreds of years. At the same time, what how exactly do they leave? Because we need to keep paying their security costs. Um, do they still like go around and shake hands? Like because that's nobody can quite say exactly what their job is. Do they still wear those uniforms? Do they still go to Scotland in the summer and wear kilts? Everything is so vague, and yet we're obsessed. I want to drill down June for a second on that con- contradictoriness or contrariness that you were pointing to from a slightly different direction, though. So, on the one hand, you know. Initially, one might think this is an entirely principled stance on the part of a new generation that finds the protocols and expectations that surround this public identity to be preposterous. Um, and, um, uh, and to wit, you know, Harry said something I thought quite moving. He said, I've seen what happens when someone I love is commoditized to the point that they are no longer treated or seen as a real person. It was a statement, so he might not have written it. Maybe he did. I don't know. I lost my mother, and now I watch my wife falling victim to the same powerful forces. That's quite a principled stand to take on behalf of your new wife. Um, and this might involve a real sacrifice. And so I thought, this is marvelous. And then you start to hear that there are all kinds of deals being made with entertainment companies, that her agents have been involved in some of this deal brokering. And you begin to think, is a totally cynical interpretation here possible, which is that this generation has grown up with the Kardashians and Beyonce and Jay-Z as a kind of royal family. And this other one is anachronistic. Its limitations are unnecessary. Um, You can make more money as this kind of unofficial royal. They could become the influencers to end all influencers, reap an enormous fortune and do it vastly more on their own terms. Is that a contrariness that you see here, June? Are you sort of a to, to be determined or am I uh, uh, am I being too cynical? No, I absolutely see that parallel. I mean, how did they make this announcement on their social media platform, on their new website that was all bells and whistles and fancy? And, and which is called, I'll just point out, SussexRoyal.com. So, you know, they are to some degree profiting from that name. Absolutely. And so... You know, yes, this is something that we've seen in, um, you know, in the other world, in the world of entertainment, where famous people, to put to put it in a bland way, kind of don't need the tabloids anymore, don't need the press anymore, because they can just make an announcement on Instagram and sell stuff on Instagram. It is kind of sad to me that the assumption seems to be that when they move toward financial independence, it will be through influencing. Um, which is everything that I've heard. You know, I usually listen to The World at One, the flagship midday BBC radio news broadcast. And, you know, all of the talk of what they'll do has been around influencing, which seems sad to me because, like, that's not actually a job. Like, I get that these are very famous people. They have a position um, that's maybe what's available to them. And obviously she's an actress, so that is not insane. And, you know, I don't know what other skills he has. He was in the army. Um, But... You know, it, it that's kind of too bad. I wish they were, you know, they've talked about maybe doing charitable things. I kind of wish it was more stuff like that. I wish it was something with a bit more meaning than whatever they're going to you know, influence on Instagram for. That just seems a bit sad to me. But yeah, they're linking up with the other part of the entertainment industry that's more explicitly uh, about commoditizing fame. All right. Uh, we'd love to get mail on the subject. It would be very fun uh, from our uh, UK listeners, especially, but everyone. Um, uh, anyway, moving on. 
All right, now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, I'm going to send people to a great interactive graphic that appeared on the New York Times a couple of days ago. Did you guys see this thing comparing the textbooks from California and Texas? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I didn't actually go deep into it, but I saw that it was... Uh... It's really fascinating. I haven't gone as deep as you can go because this is one of those interactive graphics that allows for a lot of interaction. But yeah, as, as, as a way of talking about you know the way that history and other topics are taught in different states, they took eight textbooks that have been used in California and Texas over the last, I'm not sure how many years, and just compared the way that they told various stories from American history. As you can imagine, the two state systems have very different ways of presenting information. And having grown up in the public school system of Texas, I was particularly interested to compare the way, for example, the Second Amendment is talked about. You can imagine there's a very different presentation. And sometimes the textbooks are from the same company and are just printed with different information, with some things left out, with different things emphasized. It made me just think of a conversation that we had a few years back. I think it was when we were talking with Jamel about about the series that he did on slavery with with Rebecca Onion mm-hmm. and uh, and talking about the way we had been taught the Civil War and Reconstruction growing up. And as a Texas high school student, I remember specifically being told that in the multiple choice question about what the causes of the Civil War were, slavery was the wrong answer, right? That that was only one of many complex answers and it's about <laughs> states' rights and all of these things that I thought at the time were, oh, this is me getting a nuanced understanding of the Civil War. I don't know what I thought, but that was certainly how it was presented. Anyway, wherever you grew up, I think looking at this interactive graphic is a really instructive way of thinking about education and about, you know, the huge gaps that open up when American history is presented in in different ways. You can find that on the New York Times. I would just Google Texas, California history books and and you'll find yourself there and you can spend a long time diving in. Uh, That sounds amazing. Um, June, what do you got? So because we've been talking about Britain today, I want to recommend a British TV show that actually is not available even on all the many uh, official legal ways to see uh, British television these days. Um, But on YouTube, there are lots of episodes of what has now become my favorite British TV show, which is called Antiques Road Trip. Now, don't confuse it with Antiques Road Show, uh, but it is also guess what about antiques but it's more of a competition show two antiques dealers are given 200 pounds uh they're putting a classic car they are sent on these really weird and somewhat complicated driving trips where they stop off at antiques uh stores and they spend their money on uh buying things which they then at the end of the day sell at auction and over the course of five days they compete against each other to see who can you know win more uh, and then at the end of the week uh, the winnings are given to charity. Now that sounds maybe a bit dull but it's really great. First of all the people that they um, have on the show are, are interesting and funny and good companions for the most part. Um, so there's this kind of goofy competition element but then there are these really really well done documentary just kind of stops so while somebody's off shopping another person will go and talk to somebody like recently i saw one where they were at like the the world war one trench museum uh which was just fascinating or they visited someone who was thatching a roof um and and just kind of showed how you do that and you kind of get antique education um but the key ingredient as in a lot of british sort of reality or documentary competitions or reality competition shows is there's a really cheeky narrator uh, that who really makes it. You see that on things like Come Dine With Me and other British competitions. Um, I really recommend it. Just Google it or just search on YouTube for an episode and I think you might enjoy it. Uh, it's called Antiques Road Trip. I love it. 
All right. Um, Steve Long Talker Metcalf has this week. Well, last week he had a uh, two word endorsement. This week it's only a three word endorsement. Hounds of Love. Huh? <laughs> Are you Bush. going beagling? <laughs> no. I am beagling. The Kate Bush song. You don't know the oh, Kate Bush the Kate song? Bush oh, song. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. So my daughters listen to this kind of, you know, we've just had this amazing dialectical synthesis of authored melancholy indie pop with diva-driven, producer, producer-driven mainstream pop and it's produced like Billie Eilish and is probably and even the Ariana Grande albums exhibited this Lana Del Rey being like a you know probably the most obvious combination of these two things and then all of these bedroom pop derivatives that are just marvelous I really love this music um and all of a sudden as my younger daughter was playing this playlist on comes the Kate Bush song Hounds of Love which I had not heard in 25 years and it is just it is just the greatest song. I can't tell you. And also, it's the fucking seedbed from which all of this other music derives. And in fact, that's traceable. I've been sort of Googling around and reacquainting myself with Kate Bush, who I loved back in the day. Danny, do you remember that song, Hounds of Love? When you mention it, I do. I'm embarrassed not to remember it because I was also such a huge Kate Bush fan. And it's funny you mentioned Billie Eilish, Steve, because I think I was the first person to mention her on this show when she was still kind of a YouTube artist and hadn't dropped her album or become super famous, except among teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking by my daughter's room and she was listening to Billie Eilish. And I thought, is that Kate Bush? I was so excited that she had discovered Kate Bush on her own. But there's definitely a similarity. And it was more the orchestration, you know, the kind of, like you say, that like dreamy soundscape creation. And June, you'll remember, right? I mean, she broke huge in England, yeah. much bigger than she ever did here. I, um, I, I saw her on her first tour, which I think may have been for a long time her only tour because I think she kind of hated touring and, and just really didn't do it. But I, yeah, I was a huge fan in, in her early days. Yeah, she was Bjork before Bjork, really. I mean, she had this multi, you know, kind of incorporated costume, dance, mime, gesture into the music. Um, uh, she was doing something that is, at that point was musically completely unfamiliar this um curiously choppy sometimes amelodic but ultimately quite ethereal and beautiful uh song crafting you know song style you know those first three albums are just remarkable they're each one of them is great in their way but just if you don't know kate bush like acquaint yourself just by putting on hounds of love i i just think it's one of the greatest three minute singles ever made it's so itself and yet very this one very melodic um and catchy and uh, earworm in the best sense of uh, of that term so check it out kate bush former producer ben frisch when he hears this will be able to hear oh, his screams because true. he is a kate bush, kate bush lifer yes i didn't know oh i love that all right very good shout out ben frisch all right guys uh thanks june thanks for filling in thank you for having me always a pleasure and dana a wonderful show thanks a lot thanks You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's uh, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Every week, guys, I'll say it until the end of time. Please email us. We love hearing from you. It gives us a sense of the wonderful community 
that's uh, out there that listens to this show. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Katja Komkova. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For June Thomas and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.